Open up your Bibles. We're in 1 Samuel, I believe, chapter 26. Don't you know, Rick? Well, I, let me look. Is that what it says? Oh, good, yeah. 1 Samuel 26. And Lord Jesus, I pray for grace this morning. Lord, as we talk about something again that is fundamental to our Christian walk and the calling of unconditional love on our lives and on our hearts, Lord, this is on the one hand so basic and yet it can be so difficult. And so I just ask for grace, Lord, to speak your word of truth in love and I pray for grace that your word be received, the word implanted. Father, I'm praying for good soil in our hearts this morning. And whether we have uh, thorny places or rocky places, Lord, or just dry, hard patches, that there would be some good soil that would receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls. And I pray this Holy Spirit, this is your work, so we invite your work in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse one. Then the Zephites came to Saul at Gabeah, saying, is not David hiding on the hill of Hachilah, which is before Yeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Zeph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Zeph. Saul camped in the hill of Hakilah, which is before Yeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, he sent out spies. And he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, was, coming, was commander of his army. Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him, and then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. We'll continue the story in just a moment, but Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In other words, in a single word, you shall forgive. Forgive. Jesus expanded that love beyond as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so I, that, that's the measure, that's the standard, right? No, Jesus pushes it further. He says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And the bar went from self to Jesus in a word, in a sentence. Forgiveness is the highest expression of love. If you wanna practice love, if you wanna think through and process with me this morning, what love really is, the kind of love to which we've been called, it is expressed in forgiveness. That is the highest pinnacle of love. We talked about it last week. It's the summit of the spiritual life. The most spiritual among us is the one who loves through forgiveness. That's not a judgment of 
the less spiritual among us because honestly, any one of us at any time can be quite unspiritual, quite unwilling to forgive or even perhaps feeling unable to forgive. But we talked about this last week. The summit of the spiritual life is expressed in forgiveness and forgiveness is the expression of love as Jesus said, love one another. Speaking of last week though, if you read all the way through chapter 26, there's a question that immediately arises. Didn't we already see this movie? You know, it's the same song, second verse. Haven't we read this story before? And honestly, some scholars believe it's a repeat. That what we talked about last week in chapter 24 is just a revised story in chapter 26. It's actually the same thing that happened, but the Jewish scholars, the Jewish you know, translators, they, they wanted to add a little more oomph to the story, so they, they came up with another one. This is how, unfortunately, sometimes scholars think. But if you look at the two stories, chapter 24, chapter 26, there are some striking similarities. David's on defense. Saul is running offense. Saul shows up with 3,000 men in both situations. David's speech that he gives in chapter 24, you'll find very similar to the speech he gives here, even referring to himself as a flea in both situations. In both situations, Saul comes to the point of recognizing David's rightness and David's future success. And finally, at the end of both stories, each man goes to his own place. So if you compare the two, there is a lot of similarity. But you know, historically speaking, there's often similarity in events. It should not be surprising. In fact, I think it's more compelling as to the truth of the scriptures that you have both of these stories shared and that there are similarities between them. But the location is different right out of the gate. It's not in Gedi. This is now the wilderness of Zeph. Zeph, by the way, means battlement. Battlement. This is not in a cave. This is on a hillside. And in this story, chapter 26, you have new characters that are involved. On Team David, you have Abishai, and you have Ahimelech. Note this, it's Ahimelech the Hittite. So don't confuse this Ahimelech with a previous Ahimelech who was the high priest at the city of Nobay, Remember who was slaughtered with the 84 other priests and then the entire city of Nobe was wiped out by Saul's henchman Doeg? And there was a high priest at the time, Ahimelech. Well, this is Ahimelech the Hittite, so, so probably a mercenary because he's a Hittite. He's not even an Israelite. You see, a lot of that, we, we often don't think about the reality, the geopolitical reality on the ground in Israel of the day, that there was a lot of mixing and moving about and joining up with this army and that army and realigning and, and different alignments all the way through. So Team David, you've got Abishai and Ahimelech the Hittite. On Team Saul, all of a sudden now, Abner is in play in this particular story. And the biggest difference between the two stories, in my mind anyway, is that the primary prop is not the canop. <laughs> it's not the canop. It's not the edge of the road, at robe as it was in the first story. That, that, uh, the canop and the zit zit on the robe of Saul we talked about, that's not the primary focus. This time, it's the king's spear. So very different elements in the two stories. And those who call this a revisionary tale are missing an important reality. Listen to me. Forgiveness is rarely a one-off. I mean, how often have you forgiven someone and you've never had to forgive them again? 
Now, you know, sometimes that happens. As with my wife, the one time was all she ever needed to forgive me, and we were good ever since. <laughs> Listen, where there is human interaction, conflict always lurks nearby. Even in the sweetest human interaction, there is conflict just waiting to pounce. And it's no wonder then that Jesus' command of a love that forgives is the divine directive. This is his call on our lives because he knows forgiveness is going to be necessary. We're gonna have to give it at some point or another or harden into ourselves. Jesus loves you too much to let that happen. But why another example with David? I mean, we got it, right? Do we? Did we get it last week? Did, 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 you, did you receive the word implanted and, and have a, a complete understanding and comprehension of and application of forgiveness in your life? The reason why God repeats things is that he knows we, even, we often miss them. And so this time around, we come right back to it, another example. In fact, I can count at least seven situations in this 10-year period briefly covered by the scriptures, seven different situations where David is called upon to forgive. It's not just one or two stories. It's throughout this run. In fact, I think forgiveness, the word forgiveness, probably is the best word to mark this decade of David's life. Three times he's gonna dodge the spear of Saul in chapters 18 and 19. And he continues to want to forgive. He continues to seek you know, that relationship restored. The only reason that David is an outlaw is that Saul kept missing. In chapter 22, we see the fourth example of David owning the responsibility of Saul's ruthless slaughter of the city of Nobe and all the priests. David says, that's on me. Wow, that's forgiveness. In chapter 24, last week we read, David forgives Saul in the stronghold of Engedi. In chapter 25, David has to forgive a fool, Nabal, we talked about Wednesday night. Now, thanks in large part to Abigail, who comes before and kind of causes David to slow down long enough to realize forgiveness is the issue because David's about to kill this fool. But he has to forgive, and he does. And then in the seventh example we have here in chapter 26 this morning, he's gonna offer forgiveness again. And it reminds me of another verse we looked at last week when Jesus later on would say, Luke 17, three, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, Jesus says, forgive him. So let's take a look at the seventh story of forgiveness. Verse one, again, the Zephites came to Saul at Gabeah saying, is not David hiding on the hill of Hachilah, which is before Yeshimon? So first thing to note is the Zephites are at it again. They are once again in the betrayal business. Back in chapter 23, verse 19 as Saul is pursuing David, we're told the Zephites came up to Saul at Gabeah saying, is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hachilah, which is in the south of Yeshimon? 
So this has happened before. Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Now we're back at the same location, Hachilah Yeshimon. And I mentioned those a couple of times here because Hachilah means darkness. The hill of Hachilah, the hill of darkness. And Yeshimon, before Hachilah, means desolation. So you have darkness and desolation. We have a replay here at darkness and desolation. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9 says, the one who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the problem of unforgiveness. This is a problem of, of lacking love for another is it causes you to function in darkness. You end up walking in darkness. It's not that, oh, I'm, not, I'm gonna withhold forgiveness and I'm gonna show them what they've lost and you end up in the dark. It hurts you. The Zephites have a blind allegiance to Saul. They are on Team Saul, Saul the man. But as John notes, darkness and desolation exist not against, but in the absence of light and fellowship. Darkness and desolation, light and fellowship. And the offer to come out of desolation, to come out of darkness, is always available to come into the light of fellowship. Listen to Psalm 27. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn over to Psalm 27 for a moment. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel 26. Go to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek. We just sang this, didn't we? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle, in the secret place of his tent. He will hide me. He will lift me up on the rock. He'll lift me up on a rock. The first time that David was Zephite betrayed was in this place of darkness and desolation. But he got away. Does anyone remember how he got away? Back in chapter 23, verse 28, the last verse says, Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. So there was a Philistine threat. So Saul gets called away. Therefore, they called that place the rock of escape. David escaped in that moment. Jesus is the rock of escape. If you feel like you're in the dark, come walk in the light. 
If you feel like you're alone and desolate, come have fellowship. It really is that simple. We're the ones that make it so difficult. But 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Light, fellowship, or darkness and desolation, that's our choice. But darkness and desolation are not generated in and of themselves. They only exist in the absence of light and of fellowship. If you're feeling desolate, come in fellowship. And if life is dark, come to the light of Jesus. Well, back in 1 Samuel 26. So we know that, that they're down there at this place of darkness and desolation. We know that Saul arose there. We know he took all of his men. They encamped, and now he's set against David. If you pick up the story in verse 7, David and Abishai came to the people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head and Abner and the people were lying around him. This is common military defensive posture. But somehow David and Abishai, they, they covertly break through the outer ranks. They get into the inner circle. They come up to where the spear is in the ground and they see Saul's unprotected melon. And they're ready to strike. Abishai said to David, verse eight, today God has delivered your enemy into your hand and therefore please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke and I will not strike him a second time. All it's gonna take is one. I'm gonna drive this through his head, David. Just like at En Gedi, David's counseled to strike. Remember at En Gedi, his friends in the cave were saying, this is the day the Lord has made. Go get him, David. This is our chance to kill Saul. And now here, same situation. They creep in quietly, stealthily at night, and they're right there, and here's Saul's head, and there's a spear. It's a done deal. God obviously set this up. These, this is the advice of Abishai because he believes this is a mission of assassination. Guess what? It is not a mission of assassination, not on the mind of David, although you could call it a mission of audacity. I mean, these two guys are gonna actually crawl past the 3,000 of Saul to get to him? And you have to go through ring upon ring surrounding Saul. He's in the very middle, in the heart of the deal. You gotta get past Abner, his commander, and you gotta get right to Saul himself. This is a bold and courageous move on the part of David, not to kill Saul, but to pilfer Saul's spear. Why? That's a really good question. Read on, verse nine. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. God's got this. If there's justice, if there's vengeance, if there's judgment to be had for Saul, and David suspects that there is, God will take care of it. This is in the hands of the Lord. You know what this reminds me? Evil doesn't last forever. It just doesn't continue. Bad seasons do have an end. When you're in the midst of it, when you're in darkness and desolation, it may not feel like the bad season's ever gonna end. It may not feel like we'll ever get to that point. Some of you have said to me, when will we ever see Jesus? 
And some even dismiss the idea of seeing Jesus because it seems so far off. He seems so distant from us in the daily grind. But evil doesn't last forever. Don't give up. In fact, live to outlast. This has kind of been a little philosophy of mine for, for years, just outlast. Someone says something negative about you, someone has a bad attitude toward you or spreads a lie about you, outlast it. Just live to follow Jesus, live to trust the Lord, and outlast those things that have been said, those things that have been done. You will. Just, just keep going and keep following Jesus. Trust the hand of God to deal with the vengeance, to deal with the judgment. You just live following Jesus. Well, David says, we're not here to kill. And we're certainly not gonna kill the Lord's anointed. David really has a hang-up with this anointed thing. What is the deal with the anointing? David recognizes how important it is. Verse 11, he says, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let's go. Okay, let me explain something about the spear. Saul loved his spear. This was quite, he was quite attached to it. It was attached to him. He chucked it at David. He hurled it at Jonathan and he clung to it as if it was his precious. <laughs> First Samuel 22 verse six tells us that Saul was sitting in Gabeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing around him. Now, was he sitting there with a spear in his hand ready to strike? No, not necessarily. Understand that when David takes the spear, this is more than a military heist. The spear was a symbol of royalty. This was the symbol of Saul's royal authority. You could look at the spear like a scepter. To Saul, it was. And to many kings and rulers and sheiks, even in the Middle East, the spear is the scepter. The spear is the mark of authority. In fact, even to this day, a spear that is stuck in the ground outside a Bedouin tent means that a tribal sheik lives in that tent. So it's, it's long, ancient understanding that the spear speaks of the authority of the man. David's eyes are set on Saul's spear. Abishai thinks they're going to kill. David is going to get the spear. Why? It's precisely because David continues to recognize Saul's anointed authority. I'll explain more about that in just a moment. But I think David went all the way past all these men into the inner circle right up to Saul's head and Saul's spear to get the spear. Why? Because he is still trying to get Saul's attention. If he wanted to kill him, could have done it at En Gedi. He could do it right now. He is trying to get Saul's attention attention. But how'd they get past all those men? I mean, come on. It's one thing to think they're in the inner recesses of the cave, and Saul's there relieving himself, and they're all talking and arguing about how to kill Saul, and he doesn't hear them? Well, okay. He's humming a tune. I don't know what he's doing. But now, now they've had to creep past 3,000 men and not be heard. You didn't step on a twig you know, didn't actually get the corner of a guy's, you know, sandal or something on your way in. They get past everyone. Why? How? Because verse 12 says that David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away. 
But no one saw or knew, nor did any awake, for they were all sound asleep, because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. God's got a hand in this. David's not just moving on his own. God has now supernaturally put this army to sleep. Probably the best sleep of their lives. God had done it before. He did it all the way back, Genesis 2, 21. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Probably the best sleep of Adam's life. He caused a deep sleep to fall on Abram, Genesis 15. Later, on Daniel, in Daniel chapters eight and chapter nine, the Lord shows us he is able to give you sound sleep. So if you have sleep issues, I think I've told you before, I slept so well until I turned 50, and then it was over. <laughs> and those of you over 50 know exactly what I'm talking about. You hit a point in life where all of a sudden you just don't sleep anymore. I remember being young and having to get 10 hours of sleep and going, man, I just wish I could be older, because I knew my grandpa, would he be up at 4 a.m. ready to go? I'm like, I could get so much done if I could just wake up, you know? Rolling out of bed, 17 years old, 10.30 a.m., going, oh, I feel terrible. Those days are gone. And now, if you can get five or six hours, praise the Lord. Psalm 3, verse 5 says, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. Psalm 4, verse 8 says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. I rest, I sleep, I'm at peace because he's in control. He's in charge. See, that's what faith can do is it can give you sweet rest because you don't have to lay there worrying. Does anyone else, your head hit the pillow and you start to spin out all the things that have to get done or you start to, right then, now it's quiet and you start to think someone's calling me and the phone just keeps ringing and ringing? <laughs> Don't think if your phone goes off, I'm not gonna point it out. It's just what I do. <laughs> but if your trust is in the Lord, then the first place you go when you're stressing out on the pillow is to the Lord. You know, Father, I can't do a thing about this. Cheryl and I have a, a standard practice now because sometimes at the end of the day when both of our heads hit the pillow, that's the first time we're really having opportunity to talk about things. Our standard is, We'll talk about that tomorrow. <laughs> because by the time we're done five minutes talking, I'm going, I am wide awake. And now I'm thinking about this. So, so the Lord calls us to call upon him. And we call upon him and we trust in him. And if a sound sleep falls upon you today during this teaching, that is not from the Lord. <laughs> this is supernatural work. God is providing safe passage. Now why? Back to the story, is God providing this safe passage for David to get through? Why would he do this, knowing the spear's there, and oh man, is gonna tempt David to drive it through his head. This is the pressure. The pressure on David from his men has been intense to just kill Saul. And now this is the second great opportunity to do it. Why would the Lord open that door for David? Because he knows David's heart. He knows David's intention. He knows what David's gonna do. And I believe in this story, David never intended to do any harm to Saul at all, though Abishai thought so. David did not. 
The Lord knows what David is going to do, and he provides safe passage for David to do it. And the Lord knows something else as well, something so important to recognize, something about you and about me. He knows that David needs the reassurance of faith. And what I mean by that is God knows David needs the reassurance of his own faith. He knows what David's gonna do. The Lord wants David to do it. Why? Because David will do it acting in faith, which will increase David's faith. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. How? From faith to faith. I love that phrase, from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith, from faith to faith. What does that mean? It means faith grows faith. That is, acting in faith will grow more faith. I don't know if I, I shared this with you, maybe a Sunday or maybe it was a Wednesday night, but the biggest hit at our 4th of July celebration, did I tell you what it was? Sparklers. Sparklers. I spent like over $200. I know some of you spent thousands. You're nuts. But I spent like $200 on all these you know, fireworks to fire off and everything, and we fired off about half of them, and, and I'm there with my teenagers, 15, 16, and 17 years old, and my brother, who just turned 60, who was worse than any of the other three. <laughs> and I said, hey, guys, I, they threw in some sparklers. You want spark sparklers? We got sparklers? Oh, and they got so excited. <laughs> I'm like, I just shot off a $100 rocket pack. What's wrong with you? And they get out the sparklers and they're running all over the yard. Ron, again, was the worst. My brother, 60 years old. I'm like, something's very wrong here. But you know how sparklers work, right? I learned this as a child. You light the one, but before it goes out, you light the next one. Otherwise, you're running back to dad with the matches one after another trying to keep these sparklers lit. One sparkler lights the other sparkler. From sparkler to sparkler. It's from faith to faith. And what I'm saying here is that faith ignites faith. Someone says, I don't know how to believe that. Just start acting like you do. Act on it. Move in faith and your faith will increase. It grows more faith. How do I grow more faith? By acting in faith. Faith begets faith. Faith ignites faith. Faith can light up the faith of other people, by the way. You know this. You see someone acting in great faith and you go, man, I think I can believe that. I think I can trust too. But understand that acting by faith, as David does when he goes to get this spear, this is a faith move, I'll prove it to you in a minute, but he's heading in there by faith to get the spear, he's gonna get it, he'll depart, and his faith in the power of God to protect and provide and lead him increases. So when you act in faith, your faith will increase as well. And by the way, unlike sparkers, they won't, it won't fizzle out. Spark, sparklers come to the end of themselves, right? Faith doesn't fizzle, it fortifies. That's good, write that down. <laughs> Faith doesn't fizzle, it fortifies. Colossians chapter two, verse six, I love how Paul says this. As you have received Jesus Christ as Lord, walk in him. It's such a simple prescription for the Christian life. How were you when you received Jesus? You were in faith. You trusted him. In that moment, you said, I believe, and Paul says, walk that way. But then he says, having been firmly rooted and now being built up 
in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. And Jude says, build up your most holy faith. So you walk in the faith that you came to when you believed in Jesus. And God knows the more you walk in that faith, the more that faith is going to expand and increase and strengthen and brighten. And so David, by faith, goes to get the spear. Verse 13, then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. (laughs) David called to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not reply, Abner? Then Abner replied, who are you and who calls to the king? So David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord, the king, for one of the people came to destroy the king, your Lord? And that's true. One did come to destroy the king, Abishai. David himself did not come to destroy the king, but Abishai was there and could have done it, and David restrained him from doing it. Then he says in verse 16, this thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was at his head. And they all start to rummage around and look around and go, oh my goodness, look at what happened. The spear's gone. How is this pop? What? We, we didn't, and they realized they did not protect the king. They all get it. Saul could have, should have been dead in that moment. Stunning. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, it is my voice, my lord, the king. He also said, why then is my lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done or what evil was in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my lord, the king, listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord, that is, if Yahweh has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before Yahweh, for they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. What is David talking about here? What's he saying? Okay, first of all, what is the inheritance that David is talking about? Don't get this wrong. He is not talking about his right to rule as king. David hasn't even embraced that yet. He's not talking about, my inheritance has been ripped from me. I have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, which should be mine, the throne. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, I have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord. That is the sweet fellowship of Israel. I am living in desolation, David might say, because I am cut off from my own people. Psalm 78, 71 tells us that the Lord brought him from the care of the youth with suckling lambs. He brought him, that is David, to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. Israel, God's inheritance. Israel is always spoken of in the Hebrew scriptures as God's inheritance. But in this season of his life, David is sidelined from the inheritance. David can't even be with the people of the Lord, but you know what? He longs to be part of that again. I believe that's the way it is with most people who have been involved in sweet fellowship and then fall from it. Most people who have been you know, attached or involved in, in church life and then 
for one circumstance or another get cut, cut off and, and, and end up not able to spend that time with brothers and sisters. And the longer you're away, the harder it is to get back into that fellowship. But there is something in you that longs to be part of it again. And this is where David's at. He's recognizing in this season on the run, he doesn't have sweet fellowship with Israel. At this time, he's sidelined from it. And so what he does is he frames this conflict by the Lord. He says, if, if the Lord, literally, if the Lord has stirred you up against me, verse 19, let him accept, let him accept an offering. Literally, the word accept there is smell. Let him smell an offering, David says. Now, that sounds weird to you and me, but not to Saul and the people of Israel. They would have heard very clearly. Let him smell an offering. If I have wronged you, let there be the sweet aroma of a, of a sin offering. I'll bring it, David's saying. I'll bring an offering. Exodus 19, 18, you shall offer up in smoke the whole ram on the altar. It's a burnt offering to the Lord. It's a soothing aroma, an offering of fire to the Lord. David says, if I've sinned against you, let me bring an offering. Saul's Israel, think about this. Saul's Israel, that is those who are on Saul's side and who hear from Saul and are watching his commercials and listening to his political tripe. Saul's people could only come to one conclusion as they watched him hunt down David. One conclusion. And that's that David has somehow wronged Saul. David must have done something horribly wrong. He must have sinned against king and country. And so David says, if I've wronged you, okay, I'll bring a sin offering as prescribed by Torah law. And that would have been David's right. If he'd offended Saul, if he had wronged Saul, if he had wronged Israel, bring a sin offering and he could be forgiven. But both men knew better. Both men knew that David had done nothing to deserve this. Verse 20. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. All right, you need to really hear this. At En Gedi, uh, David referred to himself as a dog and a flea. He said, if you come out after a dead dog, what am I? A dead dog, a single flea? And now he refers to the flea again, but rather than dead dog, he calls himself a partridge in the mountains. Pear trees need not apply. A partridge in the mountains. What is he saying here? Now, you gotta understand uh, the, the landscape of Israel and, and the animal life there and the partridges in Israel. Why does he say, I'm a partridge in the mountains? Well, many of us have felt this way. See if, see if this is you. There are insignificant, for one thing, partridges all over the place in Israel. These little birds, and they, they, they're, they're everywhere. David's saying, why comb the mountains for one? I'm a partridge in the mountains. They're everywhere. Go get a partridge. Go kill a partridge. Why do you have to you know, search for me? You wouldn't even do that. If you wanted to go on a partridge hunt, you didn't go up into the mountains to try and find one because they were everywhere. I'm just one of the many, David is saying. But here's the thing. There is something typical about these harmless little birds. The 
partridges in Israel, they don't fly in danger. They run. They could fly, but there's a disconnect between their tiny little pea brains and their wings, and when they are in danger, they run as fast as they can, and they will keep running and running and running. Davis and Whitcomb, in their book Israel, say the bird is continually chased until it is fatigued, and then it is easily knocked down with sticks thrown along the ground. I'm a partridge in the mountains, David says. David is weary. David is exhausted. David is running out of steam. He is running out of mercy. His forgiveness has been fatigued. His grace is exhausted. Have you ever felt that way? How many times am I gonna have to forgive this person? You know, we hear the 70 times seven and we laugh it off because it's like, okay, that's funny, but this is serious. I am weary of forgiving this person. I am weary of offering grace. I have to keep offering it? I don't have any left in me. David says, that's me right now. I'm a partridge in the mountains. You keep chasing after me. I'm running, and I'm weary of this running that goes on and on and on. And all David wants, all he longs for is one thing, the presence of the Lord. Man, I just, I just want to be in God's presence. You're chasing me. You're keeping me away from the presence. And you might say, well, wait a minute, Rick. I, we've read some wonderful psalms that he's written on the run. Clearly, clearly he's been in the presence of the Lord. I mean, he's playing the harp. He's singing for Yahweh. He's praying as he goes. Some of the psalms even say, out of the depths I have cried to you, Lord. And, and even speaking of perhaps the depths of a cave, as a picture of the depths of the heart, isn't David closer to God than at any other time? Listen, David is barred from worship at the tabernacle. He can't go to church even if he wants to. He can't attend the feasts of his faith. He misses the people of his inheritance, and most of all, more than anything else, David is hungering and thirsting in the wilderness for the nearness of the presence of God presence of God at the tabernacle. My soul longs and even faints for you. Better is one day in your courts, one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. Well, right now, David is elsewhere, and he can't get back. And he longs for that moment when he can just be in fellowship before the Lord in the presence of God. Have you been there? Are you today that little partridge? When forgiveness itself becomes wearisome, how do we obey Jesus' command to forgive seven times a day if that's what it takes? I think, I think the answer is one thing. We need David's one desire. We need the presence of the Lord. When you are so fed up forgiving, when you don't have the strength in you to forgive, when you feel like, I don't even have the willingness to forgive anymore, need the presence of God. Because without the nearness of the Lord, you will not be able to forgive. Well, you might say it with your mouth, but you will not forgive from the heart. Without God, without the Spirit, without Jesus, you will not be able to keep on forgiving 
and that is both forgiving others or forgiving yourself. That, by the way, is also a big problem among followers of Jesus. I can forgive anyone anything except for me. I just can't forgive myself. Then you need the presence of the Lord because the presence of the Lord causes me to recognize he forgives me. He has forgiven me. In fact, he has done everything necessary for me to have forgiveness for all eternity, and I can't forgive myself. I've said it before, and I say this with tenderness, but that is the height of pride. It is the prideful man, the prideful woman who says, I just can't forgive myself because you're too proud. God has forgiven you. But you will not forgive yourself and you will always struggle to forgive other people if you try to do it in your own strength out there in darkness and desolation. You need the presence of the Lord. Verse 21, then Saul responds. He says, I have sinned. This is the first confession of Saul. Note this, this comes after seven stories of forgiveness. Interesting, isn't it? Seven stories of forgiveness, and Jesus says, forgive seven times a day if that's what's required. This is now the seventh time in David's life in this season, and I believe it was probably far more than that. But finally, Saul actually comes to him and says, I have sinned. It's his first confession. I have sinned. Return. My son David that's a big word, return, because he's implying return to Israel, return to the tabernacle, return to the presence, return to the feast, return, I'm done. I will not harm you again because my life was precious in your sight today. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. That is a sad epitaph for Saul's entire life. I have played the fool and committed serious error. It is the most spiritual, by the way, the most confessional of anything we ever hear from Saul in that verse, verse 21. Saul finally breaks, he finally com confesses his sin, and he repents to David. G. Campbell Morgan calls verse 21 perhaps the shortest and most accurate autobiography ever stated. Shortest autobiography ever stated. But again, it's David's forgiveness over and over and over that finally gets Saul to the point. To the point. Verse 22. David replied, Behold the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. Don't miss this. This is a point of honor. What David does right here, he doesn't rub it in. He doesn't say, well, it's about time, Saul. Duh. How many times do you have to go through this? Of course you've sinned. We all know you've sinned. He doesn't go there. He acknowledges the anointed ascendancy of Saul by returning the spear. Behold the spear of the king. Let one of your men come get it. He doesn't even in that moment go, note this, 3,000 men and Abner. Check this out. Understand who is the righteous man before you today? It's me, it is not Saul. Therefore, I am anointed king and should be king. He doesn't go there. He just says, give the king back his scepter. I'm returning the spear today. Now, someone might say, how foolish, won't Saul just throw it again? How foolish to forgive, won't Saul just come at him again? Boy, you know what would be really helpful at this point in the study? be really helpful if we could hear David's heart 
really hear what he was thinking right at this time. Oh, we can. Turn over to Psalm 54. <laughs> Psalm 54. This is for the choir director, Psalm 54, on stringed instruments, a masculine. A masculine is a teaching psalm. This is a teaching psalm of David. When the Zephites came and said to Saul, is not David hiding himself among us? This is what was on David's heart. Ready, verse one. Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. And that is absolutely key. Verse four, David can't get to the tabernacle. He can't get back into sweet fellowship with Israel. He's barred from all of this, but he knows, he yet knows who sustains him. What makes this Psalm of David and so many of the Psalms at this season of his life so remarkable, you've gotta get this mindset, is to the Israelite in that day, the presence of God was had at the tabernacle. That's how you drew near to the Lord. That's where prayer happened, where worship happened, where offering and sacrifice happened. You gotta get to the tabernacle, otherwise you are distant from God. And the further away from the tabernacle you are, the further from God you are, and yet David, even though he knows he can't get to the tabernacle, understands the Lord sustains me. The relationship that, Jesus, that, that David has with Jesus, <laughs> with the Lord in this season is so remarkable because it runs against the grain. God said, I'll meet with you above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and David knows it is the Lord who sustains him. That's faith. That's a man after God's own heart. Despite the, the other foolish idiosyncrasies that we have seen and will see in, see in David, he still knows his sustaining is from the Lord. Verse five, he says, he will recompense the evil of my foes. Literally, the evil will return to those who lie in wait for me. That's, that's what it would read in the Hebrew. And then he says, destroy them in your faithfulness. Now, if destroy seems a little harsh, the word destroy actually is put them to silence. You ever pray, Lord, silence the voice of the enemy. That's what David is praying here. Put him to silence. See, David understands something as he prays, as he writes this psalm, that truth is the ultimate silencer of hatred. Verse six, willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good, for he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. You gotta note this in verse seven, the word is not he, it's it. It has delivered me from all trouble, which leads us to ask, what has delivered you from all trouble? If not the Lord, what has delivered you? And the answer in verse six, his name. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good, for it has delivered me from all trouble. The name of the Lord. Do you recognize sometimes that just speaking the name of the Lord brings peace? that just declaring the name of the Lord, just saying, Jesus, I need you, before you even get to the I need you, peace begins to come. 
that just calling out the name of Jesus changes everything? Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and, and are safe. That's what you do. You run to the name. You speak the name. You listen to the name. You sing the name. Peter said there's salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that's been given under, among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. And David says, this is what delivers me, the name of the Lord. Alone, desolate, in the darkness of a cave, David could pray, oh, Lord God, Yahweh, help me. And he would know deliverance in his heart. When you're in a place where forgiveness is exhausting and difficult to give, call on the name. If you're weary in your faith, call on the name. If you're despairing, if you in your soul are all stirred up, call on the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord encourage you and deliver you from whatever the circumstance. Psalm 54, it's a good one to keep in hand. We'll back in the story, 1 Samuel 26, verse 23. David says again, he says, the Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress. David says, the Lord will repay. That is always key. We talked about that last week too. It's how I get judgment of others out of my hands. I leave it to the Lord. I hand it to him. Once judgment is removed from my heart, forgiveness flows much more easily. But judgment gets in the way. But they're wrong. He's wrong. She's wrong. How can I forgive? Okay, you hand the wrongness to Jesus. And once you've given the wrongness to him, What's between you? What's left? Forgive. But judgment, it keeps us from forgiveness. The Lord will repay. Let him take care of it. And note this, the man after God's own heart knows something else. This is amazing. He says, may my life be highly valued in the sight, not of Saul, but of the Lord. Let me just say this. You know this. I gotta repeat it again. God highly values life. God values life. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And by the way, John 10, 10, I believe is the defining verse of our culture, of our one way or the other culture, which is becoming more and more entrenched. You can go the way of the thief who kills and steals and destroys in darkness and desolation, or you can come to Jesus who offers you life, who highly values life. We're living in a culture, in a culture where choice supplants life as the highest value, the highest ideal. And because choice supplants life, guess what? Death dominates the headlines. You put that together, the whole pro-life, pro-choice debate that people would sideline as a political issue, it's not a political issue, it's a moral issue. But that debate, which is over here and kind of roils on the side at times, why do we see the violence, the constant, continual, murderous bloodshed and violence in our culture? It's because the culture doesn't value life. Duh. In a culture that highly values life, 
Life is valued, and you don't see this kind of violence. But in a culture that doesn't value life, he steals, he kills, and he destroys. That is the devil. Jesus came that we might have life. But let me finish up this morning with this question, because we're talking about forgiveness and how to offer forgiveness and how to walk in forgiveness with that, that love. Here's the final question for this morning. What is the point of the spear? What's the point of the spear? Again, it's the primary prop in the story. This is the one we see. In fact, I don't know if you counted it up, but we actually read the word. We see the word for spear. We see it described or referred to in verse 7, 8, 11, 12, 16, and 22. Six times. Now, not to make too much of this, but six is the number of man. And we see the spear of Saul appear six times exactly in this story. Six is the number you know that never gets to seven, never gets to completion, the 666 of the beast that they've made movies about is nothing but the number of a man who never gets to seven, never becomes complete. The number six here, the spear six times. My friends, this is the picture of human authority. It is always limited. It is always fleeting. It is always incomplete. Putin will die. That's what the statistics say anyway. Hitler died. Charlemagne died. Nero died. All of these human authorities that seem so oppressive and so overruling and, and, and so dangerous to the, the existence of human life, they all died. They all went away. Human authority never lasts. There's only one authority that's eternal. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Every other authority is gonna go. You can vote for whoever you want in the next election cycle that they're already pushing on the news. Guess what? Whoever is elected, should the Lord tarry and give us more time, is not going to last. That's the one thing I've always loved about our country. If you don't like the president, just vote the next time. What if he gets voted back again? Okay, four years, and he's gone. Yeah, but he can do a lot of damage in four years. Yes, and the Lord will repay. <laughs> give it to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. But the point is, the point of the spear, human authority, Saul's authority, this has been 10 years of David's life on the run. And that human authority, it's transient. But Paul writes, Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You're not stuck at six. You're gonna get to seven. 1 Corinthians 1.8, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, Jesus is the only way that you are ever going to have a completed life. Without Jesus, you will always be incomplete. You will always be six. You will never get to that number of completion. You will never get to that point of having been perfected outside of Jesus Christ. How does he do it? How does it work? Well, what else did they take along with the spear? They took a jug of water. Now you might think, well, maybe David was thirsty, possibly. 
David takes the spear and the water. When the son of David took the spear, the water flowed. John 19, 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Let me give you three things to jot down super fast because it's really not a sermon without points. Number one, the driven spear. The driven spear. This spear driven into the side of Jesus was physical proof of a burst heart. It's why blood and water come flowing out, spraying out of Jesus as his dead body is pierced with the sword. It's proof that he was dead because this is what happens when a heart bursts. And so doctors will tell us that's what killed Jesus on the cross. It wasn't the nails. It wasn't the blood loss. It was his heart finally just burst. And when that happened and the spear went in, the blood and water came out. I'm not trying to be gross. I'm just trying to point out the absolute assured finality of Jesus' death. John is saying he was dead on the cross. The blood and the water are proof that Jesus died on the cross, proof that he did not just swoon, proof of the love of God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The driven spear that brings the water, the blood and the water. By the way, what else happened on the dark hills of both Hakilah and Calvary? Not only do we see the driven spear, Davis in his book said, for all his protection, that is Abner plus 3,000 troops, Saul was defenseless. The omnipresent symbol of Saul's power has been effortlessly pilfered. David disarmed Saul. Hey, the driven spear. Secondly, the disarmed spear. The disarmed spear. And that is exactly what the son of David did. Colossians chapter two, verse 13, which reads, when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having Listen, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Do you realize what that means? There is not a sin in your life that God hasn't or can't forgive. Those of you who cannot forgive yourselves, he has. How do we know? The driven spear and yet the disarmed spear He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Hey, forgiveness is the highest expression of love. And the forgiveness of God is the ultimate proof of his love for you, his love for me. But there's one more thing, and you need to hear this because every time we forgive by faith, and it takes faith to forgive, it takes trusting in the Lord to offer that forgiveness that otherwise would be so difficult. Every time we forgive in faith, it leaves a mark. Not a wound, not a scar, but it leaves a mark. Call it the mark of forgiveness, what I would call the distinguishing mark of the point of the spear. The driven spear, the disarmed spear, the distinguishing mark of the point of the spear. The spiritual man or woman is marked by forgiveness. 
every time you forgive. And that is forgiveness received in Christ, received from Christ, and it's forgiveness given to other people. It is the mark of healing because forgiveness is healing. This is how you know a man or a woman after God's own heart because they're able to forgive and every time they forgive, there is a mark of healing that is left on our souls, on our spirits. Galatians chapter six, verse 14, this is why Paul said, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And then Paul says this, I've always loved this verse, Galatians 6, 17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren, amen. Forgiveness leaves a mark. The more you forgive, the more you love, the more your faith increases, and the more you are marked as a spiritual man or woman with a heart after God. Well, the story ends, verse 25, 1 Samuel 26. Then Saul said to David, blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went his way, I would add, having forgiven, and Saul returned to his place. And you need to understand this is the last time they speak. David will forever know that the last time he spoke to Saul he forgave him. That's huge. It's the last time Saul's gonna hunt David. It's the last time David has to offer this forgiveness that leaves him like a partridge in the mountains. 16 months later, Saul is gonna die in battle on Mount Gilboa by his own sword. We'll come to that story in a few weeks here. Point is this, there's coming a day when all will be forgiven just let that settle. There's coming a day when all will be forgiven, when we will fully recognize it, when we will have given it, when Jesus' forgiveness will be fully known, comprehended. And until then, until that day, if you're weary of forgiveness, if you're tired of forgiveness, if you're not sure how to get there, you need the presence of God in Jesus Christ. It's the only way you're gonna forgive. The presence of God in our lives will allow us to forgive again and again and again and again and again. Father, make us like you. Forgiving, Father, make us like you. Lord, you are faithful in forgiveness. You are patient in mercy. You are enduring in grace. We, for ourselves, grow tired in the same old offenses. Father, when that happens, help us hear Jesus. Would you cause it to ring in our ears, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, I also wanna pray for those who desperately need the healing of forgiveness, the forgiveness that only you can give. Father, I pray strength and the resolve to repent, to come to Jesus today, I ask you, Holy Spirit, to be moving among us. And I pray this, Lord, in the only name that can save, the name of Jesus, amen. <laughs>